0: In a new book called Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump, FBI veteran Peter Strzok grapples with the question that should concern every U.S. citizen. When a president appears to favor foreign interests over those of our nation, has he become a national security threat? Drawing on decades of experience, Compromised is the definitive account of what happened and what's to come. Compromised. Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Last month, a court in California ordered Uber and Lyft to treat their drivers as employees rather than independent contractors. Since the rideshare app business model, which always operates at a loss, mind you, is predicated upon underpaying drivers and denying those who work 40 hours or more benefits in overtime, both companies have threatened to completely cease operations in California. But they didn't follow through. They're appealing the ruling, which means that they still don't have to recognize their drivers as employees. We're all vaguely aware of the shady practices of big tech but in the September issue, Barry C. Lynn, the executive director of the Open Markets Institute, clarifies how integral invasions of privacy, tiered pricing, and outright manipulations of reality are to their businesses. I spoke with Lynn about the biggest offenders, Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Uber, and why we shouldn't just shrug our shoulders and say, I know they're tracking me, but I've got nothing to hide. Let's talk about common carrier rules, because I don't think everyone is necessarily, they aren't discussed very much, and they were created in a very different time. And you, your article begins with a brief history of common carrier rules in the United States. And for people who may not be familiar with them, what are common carrier policies? What's the problem they were designed to solve? And how are they expressed in American law?
1: Yeah, so common carrier Laws and policies are foundational to American democracy. I mean, they were created to deal anytime that you have a a monopolist, someone who controls an essential service that could be crossing a river in a ferry, or it could be riding a railroad, or it could be talking on a telephone. And what we want to ensure is that the person who controls this service treats everyone the same, that they provide the same pricing and the same terms of service. And if that doesn't happen, and it's an especially powerful monopoly, especially essential service, what happens is that the person who controls that monopoly then has the ability to pick and choose who gets to cross the river or who gets to get to market. Mm -hmm. And that power basically allows them to extort as much money as someone has, uh, you know, if they need to do something, they need to get to market. They're going to pay the maximum amount that they, uh, up to the, the extent that they, can pay to get to market. So this is a common carrier. It sounds technical, but it really means rule of law in the political economy, as opposed to rule of man. We don't want people picking and choosing winners and losers. We want everybody to get the same service, rule of law.
0: Right. So this is um, a pretty essential component of maintaining a democracy, how did it happen that the Internet was exempted from common carrier restrictions?
1: You know, parts of the Internet are covered by common carrier restrictions or have been covered by common carrier restrictions. And this is, you know, we've heard about net neutrality, and that was a, a big deal. And it says that if you control uh, a wireless a company or you control a broadband service that you cannot discriminate in the services that you provide. You have to carry everybody at the same price and for the same terms. You can't screw around with other people's businesses. Mm-hmm. Now, the Trump administration has weakened that in substantial ways. But but the basic, you know, we understand that, you know, for for these kind of corporations, you're not supposed to screw around with other people's business but the applications that ride on the internet applications are you know things like google facebook and amazon or spotify you know what were once these little pieces of the internet but now some of them have grown super large and those applications have never been uh, sort of brought under any of these officially uh, have never been brought under any of these regulatory regimes mm. and they the they're governed by uh, sort of laws that were passed back in the mid-90s, you know, 25 years ago. And back then, no one could imagine that we would have a corporation as powerful as Amazon or as powerful and all-reaching as Google. So they were given, the applications were given a, a license to, you know, to grow without certain types of constraints. Uh, but it's long past t- the time when we need to go back and say, hey, that might have been good in 1995. But we need to radically rethink this now.
0: Do you feel like it's a problem that lawmakers just don't understand or don't care that these this handful of corporations are really dictating how we all interface with the world, how we move, how we get information?
1: It has been a problem. It's been a huge problem. It's it's a, an outrage that that politicians from both parties have done nothing about this for so long you know there were cases that were brought against google there were investigations that were launched against google and 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 other large corporations more than 10 years ago the obama administration had plenty of opportunity to sort of regulate this these corporations the trump administration has also had plenty of opportunities and in both cases the obama administration and the trump administration they've made things worse now, the good news is that we actually have folks like david Cicillini who 's uh, the head of the Antitrust Subcommittee and the House of Representatives who understands that this is a problem and who is intending to do something about it is doing something about it <laughs> and We have a bunch of people in the regulatory agencies who are waking up to the nature of the problem and to the need to do something about it and this is true in it 's true in washington it 's true in europe and it 's also true in in the states we actually have 52 states' attorneys general, that includes Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia, who are now part of an investigation of Google. So the oversight up to this point is, is unforgivable. We should never have gotten into this problem as deeply as we have gotten into it. However, uh, there's a lot that is happening now. Uh, It's not done by any means. These corporations are still immensely powerful, but we are now waking up to the nature of the problem and we have powerful people who are waking up to the fact that they have all the tools they need to fix it. But we need to continue this fight until it is completely fixed.
0: Right. And, you know, your piece is talking mostly about online platforms, like Google, Facebook, etc. But the level of actual infrastructure that makes the internet possible, and the question of net neutrality, common carrier principles should also apply to those. So the FCC repealed net neutrality in 2018. So it's basically dead in the US for the time being. How should we expect service providers to use this new power? And how does it fit into the larger picture you're describing of increasing tech uh, monopolization?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question because we're already seeing, because of the decisions that the Trump administration made, about that Ajit Pai made in the FCC, uh, we're already seeing some of the wireless corporations sort of taking advantage of new licenses to sort of discriminate. We see this with at and They sort of promote certain kinds of of uh, businesses and, and and suppress other types of businesses on your phone that 's a bad thing and we 're going to fix that that has to be fixed you know if there's a the, as soon as there 's a new democratic administration uh, whatever faction of the party that 's going to be fixed but you know a t and t and 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 comcast as bad as they are and they're they're bad actors in many ways the power and uh, that Google and Facebook and Amazon have and the knowledge that they have of other people's business is on an entirely different scale. So, yes, we should be upset about what the Trump administration did uh, with net neutrality. It, it was actually stupid what they did. It was stupid in the sense that the people that they mean to serve are not being served. And even in the corporations that they mean to serve, uh, it's not even really helping Comcast and AT&T in any significant way. It just... It was a bad uh, uh, decision. It was a stupid decision. But compared to the failure to act against Google, Facebook, and Amazon, it's not something we need to worry about in a significant way today. We have to deal with Google, Facebook, and Amazon. That is the gravest threat that we face today in terms of control over information, control over our commerce, control over democracy.
0: Right. And... um throughout your piece, you suggest these handful of companies with common carrier rules would be a better way to break them up than the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. And you maintain this emphasis throughout the piece. What went into your decision to focus on common carrier restrictions over the more direct solution of breaking up monopolies? I mean, speaking of things that happened in the 90s, uh, the big lawsuit against Microsoft, where, you know, they were, which looks quaint right now where they were partially broken up because they included internet explorer on their own machines. So basically why is why are common carrier rules better suited to the problems of big tech than something like antitrust laws?
1: Well actually they both fit together. I mean that's a great question and what we have to understand is that there's a whole array of laws that we have to bring together to make a complicated system uh, like, uh, you know, a communication system work. You know, it's not just antitrust. And it's not just regulation. You have to use them both together. And they're actually all part of what we call competition policy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, our anti-monopoly policy. Uh, so uh, so what we we want to do both. We want to use our antitrust laws. To break these corporations up to restructure them, and we also want to use other forms of regulation to to uh, affect their behavior. We actually have a lot of laws under antitrust that we can use to deal with discrimination. We have essentially common carrier style uh, uh, tools that within the antitrust regime. But what we have to uh, understand is important now is that breaking these corporations up it doesn't necessarily solve the problems. I mean once you if you broke off search, you know from from mapping if you broke facebook into 3 different corporations each of those separate standalone pieces, Google Search or Google Maps or uh, uh, three different Facebooks, they'd still have this power to discriminate, to pick and choose winners and losers. You know, same with Amazon. If you made three different Amazons, if they still have the ability to pick and choose winners and losers, you still have a problem uh, with these corporations. So you have to use both of these sets of laws. Yeah. And and the most important one is to prevent discrimination because that is what that's how you establish rule of law. That's how you ensure that no one is manipulating the flow of information through your society, the flow of news through your society. Right now, Google and Facebook manipulate the flow of news through our society, between the journalist and the reader, between the author and the reader. So that's what makes this a, a, a more fundamental, the most fundamental action we have to take. And and to be clear, I mean, I, uh, you know, it's actually Harper's, published uh, a piece of mine back in 2006 which was called breaking the chain the antitrust case against walmart in which we for the first time really brought the sherman act out of the darkness <laughs> that it had been uh, uh, thrown into by the chicago schoolers by the neoliberals we brought the sherman act out of the darkness in harper's in 2006 you know so we you know this is fundamental to What I do, this is fundamental to what my organization does, uh, but there is a hierarchy of activity and we have to focus foremost on ensuring that if you control a powerful corporation, you must treat everybody the same. And then after that, we come back. And we, the people, we look at these corporations and the structure of these corporations and we decide what structure is best suited for democracy and for the kind of society and the kind of political economy that we want to have. And then we use the antitrust laws to restructure. But first rule of law, and then uh, sort of uh, figuring out how to get the right structure.
0: Right. And, you know, you just mentioned uh, discrimination and how news is presented, but Your piece also talks about price discrimination. So platforms like Uber, Amazon, and Google all currently have the legal power to target us with customized prices based on the data they collect about us. And as you point out, it's really hard to know when the prices we're getting are different than it would be for someone else. So when you were reporting this piece, how were you able to verify the occurrence of price discrimination on these platforms? And how does this affect us as more than individual consumers?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's another uh, great question because it's, you know, the thing is that they have all the information and we have no information. You know, we're, we're essentially all by ourselves you know, each of us by ourselves. Uh, So, you know, how is it that we can kind of come to understand that there is kind of behaviors that are destructive, like, you know, discriminating in terms of pricing? First, we have to understand that there's two sides to these markets. There's the supplier side, the seller side. Now, when it comes to, if, if I'm a publisher of books, and this is this is now a fact. What we do know, and this is you know, uh, is widely available in the press, is that Amazon, for instance, treats every single seller of books differently. They have different deals with Hachette uh, and with Penguin and with Macmillan. Each and every deal is unique. And so they have different pricing for services and they have different types of services. And and those corporations are not allowed to compare. They're not allowed to sort of share information with each other. So what you have is discriminatory behavior by the central platform, Amazon, vis-a-vis the seller. Mm -hmm. And that's a very dangerous situation. But then when it comes to us as buyers, you know, are they manipulating us? Well, they are manipulating us every time that they hide something that we want to buy. Mm-hmm. You know, so if we go to buy something from Hachette, but Amazon says, well, I got something better for you. I want, you know, Maybe you'd like to buy this instead. And they're essentially punishing Hachette for whatever reason. They're manipulating you in order to get at Hachette. Right. So that's in terms of service. They're manipulating you as part of their effort to manipulate the seller. Now in terms of the actual price manipulation of what Uber does, well, Uber said they do it. That's how we know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uber admitted it. Right. You know, so they and Uber has said that, that we charge different people different prices based on our knowledge of what they will pay. So and we know uh, that everyone else has that exact same power. And if you have a power and no one is checking on you, you're gonna use that power. That's just human nature.
0: Right. Especially under uh system where that power is completely unchecked and rewarded um so in the part where you're discussing uber and their manipulative or just sort of shady practices you write quote they have even adopted techniques typically used in video games to more effectively manipulate drivers and i will uh, admit that I am someone who likes video games. I see them as an extension of all sorts of games that have existed throughout history, but I also recognize that they can be addictive like gambling. I wanted to get a sense of why that's a bad thing. you, you don't you don't explain what these uh, techniques are. is Is it such a bad thing for Uber to gamify things for their employees even if they don't want to call them their employees?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a very different thing. You know, it's. I mean, i i played I played many video games in my life, going back to the ancient times of video games. And, <laughs> and actually, my uh, my son uh, is a uh, video game developer. You know, so this is part of our family. Something we understand very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but the thing about a video game now, they are addictive, and you know, but you know, at a certain point, this is something that people voluntarily enter into it's a it's a type of entertainment and they have to decide whether they want to engage in this entertainment versus other forms of entertainment music or movies or reading books or whatever it is that you might do or you know playing music so in that sense it's like yeah there you know going in that these people are going to try and keep you in their world and 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 prevent you from going over and watching something on hbo that's Mm -hmm. We're sophisticated people, but when you are a desperate worker, and you are being manipulated by this awesomely powerful a i instrument, this artificial intelligence instrument that has tracked you and learned how you operate, and they kind of get a sense about how desperate you are they have you know they know how much money you need to make to pay your rent and to put food on the table for your three kids. They can manipulate you in all these ways to get you to work harder or get you to work differently or to you know sideline you for a period of time while they they treat someone else that they prefer but they know that you'll work a longer hour. So uh, using these kind of techniques against workers is despicable.
0: Yeah. So how how should tech companies responsibly interface with their employees? Because again, this is uh, Uber, for example, is a decentralized network of taxi drivers. And they, you know, Uber cut out the middleman by becoming the new middleman. So assuming that it still exists after it's been, you know, common carrier restrictions have been applied to it or broken up, how should a business like Uber interface responsibly with their employees?
1: Well, I mean, if they are employees, actually there's restrictions on how you can manipulate them. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. and that's actually one of the reasons that they are very much resisting having the people who drive for them recognize as employees. It puts them under a different regulatory regime. It's not a perfect regime, but it's better than uh, what they have now for the, for the drivers. And so we have actually, you know, when it comes to Uber drivers and people who drive for Uber, we really have two sort of potential pathways forward. One is to turn these people into employees of these corporations, and there's efforts to do that, such as in California. Another option is to eliminate the corporation pretty much entirely and turn it into a type of cooperative that is run by the people who operate it, you know, who who operate within it, the the drivers. There's actually been a number of efforts to and actually some very successful models for turning taxi systems into types of cooperatives Mm -hmm. that are run by the taxi drivers you know so what we want to get here is we should remember that these are taxi services and we have hundreds and hundreds of years of regulation about taxi pricing and about the treatment of the driver and about the treatment of the worker so we have a real long guide to study to figure out how to make this work for both the driver and And the rider. And we don't, one thing we do know is that we don't need a manipulative corporation standing in between the driver and the rider. We don't need the Uber business model. We can eliminate that Uber business model in many ways, and we must eliminate the Uber business model.
0: And I mean, thinking of something like Amazon, I have, you know, plenty of leftists have made this argument that we should consider nationalizing Amazon because what was the problem with communism? Oh, you can only buy from one place and look where we are now. So would that, would a nationalization or an employee-owned model also work for something like Amazon?
1: I mean, the thing, what you want with Amazon... I mean the, the employees of Amazon are working in warehouses right but then you have the people who are using Amazon the great majority of people don't you know who use Amazon don't work at Amazon they're selling on Amazon and they're buying on Amazon so Amazon's a place where sellers and buyers come together it's a it's a marketplace right you know potentially but it's not treated it's not regulated as a marketplace and markets in actual markets, the seller has control over their own price. The seller is the person who de- determines what terms on which something is sold. That's what, ha- that's how a market work- functions. But with Amazon, they're manipulating the price. They're manipulating the terms. They're manipulating, you know, who gets to talk to who. So Amazon is not a marketplace. So what we want to do with Amazon is, is actually just that that's where the common carrier comes in is that. Uh, and we have other models. I mean, eBay actually functions pretty much this way, which is that the seller has control over their terms and their pricing. So what we want to see is a, an, an intermediary that is very thin, that does not manipulate other people. It's not sort of determining who's buying what and where. And it's, it's basically sort of allowing for the seller to, you know, so here's the price I'm, I'm offering, and here's the terms of service, and then I'm going to offer you these different options for uh, for shipment, and you get to choose what, you know, shipment you can pay for. Uh, and so it's, it's really quite simple, but what we want to make sure is that the intermediary, Amazon, is not manipulating other people's businesses.
0: Right. Because again, this is, you know, with Uber, right? What was the idea? Oh, yeah, this is just when you're out driving and you happen you could have a little extra time and you could happen to pick up somebody and get a little extra money. And the same with Amazon sellers. It's like, oh yeah, it's just, you know, you could sell your old books on the side. It's not a big deal. But these are people's livelihoods. And they can't survive without them. And they're barely getting by as it is, because again, these predatory practices you're you're describing. And one of the most frightening aspects you mentioned in your piece is the way that big tech's consolidation of power now allows them to do things that increase atomization, whether that's targeting us with polarizing ideological content, making it hard for us to identify concentrations of power expressed in prices, or just making us wary of expressing our opinions on these platforms. Where where does this all point for you? you know, looking beyond policy interventions for the moment, how can we as consumers, users of the internet, resist atomization?
1: It's the way these corporations are structured. As a consumer, there's really nothing you can do. There's very little you can do. You know, so that's why it's so important to look at the, the challenge here as a political challenge. You know, it's like there's, you know, you can't, like boycotts, don't really work. Right. They don't really, they don't work. It's certainly for, at the consumer side, consumers have almost no power. And when there's a monopoly, you can't boycott because you depend on the monopoly. Right. Right. It's it's like you're you're hurting yourself by boycotting. So that's the problem with boycotts on the consumer side. But we saw this with the advertising boycott of Facebook. It sort of had some effect for a little while, but then they kind of blew over. So even like big, powerful corporations, you know, when they engage with a boycott of of Facebook, uh, it's of limited uh, duration and of limited effect. So just anyone tells you to boycott, just, you know, change, just move away. (laughs) It's it's not, it's it's not, you know, uh, it might get you a headline, uh, but it's not going to get you real change. The only way you get real change is using the government, using the state to fix this. That's why we created an all-powerful state uh, under our control, the control of Congress, uh, back at the beginning of this country. We created a tool that we could use to protect us against concentrations of power. Concentrations of power in foreign nations and concentrations of power here at home. So the only way that we deal with these concentrations of power, which are, and let's be clear, Google, Facebook, and Amazon are... Perhaps the gravest private threats to our democracy and our liberty since the planters, you know, at the time of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. The only way we can deal with this power that they have consolidated is to use the state to neutralize them and to break them. So that is how what we must do now. And there's a whole bunch of people who are, are doing this. As I mentioned, there's, you know, there's people in the Senate, there's people in the House, there's every single state in the United States is doing that, the States Attorneys General, people in Europe. Uh, but, but what people can do who are listening to this, what you can do is you make sure you demand that your representatives at the state level, at the local level at the federal level, are fighting these monopolies foremost. This should be among the absolute top things that they do. Perhaps the very top mission for the people who are representing you should be to fight these monopolies. And if they're not, you need to get rid of them.
0: Hmm. I mean, it's a very accurate description of how democracy is supposed to work. However, it's a slow process and, you know, we're in a time where things like gerrymandering are legal. They, it, was, it was approved by the Supreme Court, right? So how much, how much can we really continue to believe in these mechanisms when these mechanisms are continuously manipulated by money, lobbyists, influence, that sort of thing?
1: No, I mean that's that's a good question, but the thing is, is what we're when it comes to the political economy, uh, there's been an awakening that's taking place, and it's it's this awakening from neoliberalism. I mean, this is you know, so the first thing we actually have to do is, as a people, we have to like wake ourselves up from. The lies of neoliberalism, mm-hmm. you know, neoliberalism was the idea that uh, that there are these market forces out there and we just need to like turn over control to market forces and everything will be more efficient and we'll end up with more stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so this, the thing that is restricting most of our uh, our ability to see the problem and, and understand the problem is the fact that for the last 35 years, uh, anyone who's gone to college, anyone who has you know picked up the newspaper, you've been sort of indoctrinated to this neoliberal way of looking at the world. Now, you may think you're not, but I mean, I see this among many of my leftist friends. They actually parrot neoliberal framing and neoliberal ideology when they even when they mean not to do so. Uh, so, but for 200 years in this country, the foremost way that we used to control our political economy, the foremost tool that we used to make our democracy, to make our society, to make the kind of citizens that we wanted to be was anti-monopoly law, it's a competition policy. We shaped competition uh, in, in a way that would shape a certain type of society and a certain type of. Of, of of person. And we did, uh, you know, it was a, there were a lot of problems with this country for those first 200 years. Mm-hmm. A huge number of problems. But when it came to keeping Monopoly under control, we did a pretty damn good job. So the tools are out there, but the, the what you have to understand is, you know, first got to get these this, these lies out of your head. And now the good news here is that we see a bunch of folks who are already doing this, who are, who are moving beyond this way of thinking. There's, you know, Senator Warren and there was Senator Sanders, but there's also, I mean, even Amy Klobuchar is moving in a different direction and Cory Booker is moving in a different direction. And there are Republicans that are doing this in the Senate. And then we have the things that are happening in the House that are unprecedented in terms of standing up to corporate power. And then we have things that are happening when you've got 52 states standing up to Google, unprecedented Mm-hmm. You know we have people like like Attorney General Keith Ellison out in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a true hero. And one of the things that he's doing is he's a, a leader in this fight against monopolization. So there's all these people out there who are fighting the good fight. All these leaders out there who are fighting the good fight. And they're fighting it in a way in which that they are winning. And, but it is vital for people not to despair and say, "Oh, our democracy doesn't work." Actually, our democracy is working in many fundamental ways. So get rid of the, you know, these these blinders that are on you, tear them off. Mm -hmm. You know, look through the world through an anti-monopoly lens. Look through the world through traditional American common sense political economics. And you will see that all these people are actually out there doing the right thing and making real progress and that they're on a pathway to win but they need your support. They need more of your support. They're moving, they're moving forward. They're winning, but they need more of your support. And despair uh, is is destructive.
0: Well, I think that's a very hopeful note to end on. So thank you so much. And thank you for your article. I hope it uh, takes the wool off of people's eyes.
1: Thank you for having me. It's uh, great to talk.
0: You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine Podcast. Produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get twelve issues for twenty-one ninety-seven, visit harpers.org/save.